Good morning, afternoon, or night, whenever or wherever you happen to be. You're listening to Music in Theory, where we take deep dives into musical topics for listeners both nerdy and normal. My name is Brent Lawrence, and today I'm talking to an entire gaggle of music theorists. It's going to be a great time. I have two friends on the show with me today, Tyler Osborne and Michael Sabulski. We're all working on our PhDs in music at the University of Oregon right now, and we often get together to talk about music, and let's be honest, complain about grad school life. I just wanted to mention a few things before we get started. This is a brand new podcast, so getting the word out about it would help me out a lot. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, and whatever else. Our Facebook handle is at musicintheorypod and Twitter is at Music in Theory. Also check out the Patreon page at patreon.com slash music in theory. I'll put this all in the show notes too. But the biggest thing you can do to help is spread the word, and if you feel like it, leave a five-star review on iTunes so that the powers that be know that this podcast is cool. Just a few more things. This was a very free-flowing conversation, so if we get off into the weeds a little bit, editorial Brent will jump in to clear things up. Also, I've changed some equipment around since the recording of this conversation, so you may notice a slight difference in production qualities. Finally, we talked for so long that I've decided to split the conversation into two parts. Part two will be out soon. Okay, without further delay, I give you Tyler Osborne and Michael Sabelsky. We start out by talking about what it is exactly that a music theorist does and is. You'll hear Michael talk first. Um, <laughs> I suppose music theory. I mean, it's kind of a <clears throat> a bit of a loaded question. What you know? What does a music theorist do? At one point, I always thought that a music theorist was the culmination of a performer, um, and, and an academic, and a teacher. And that um, a lot of us, I think, I think Tyler's in the same boat. Hopefully, he is because if. If he's in my boat, I can't swim, so that would be really cool. <laughs> um, I think most of us that are that are theorists came at this from a performance background previous to our academic backgrounds. I think, Brent, you're probably in the same boat as well. Mm-hmm. And so part of it is just being, having some chops as a performer. And then from there, you know, at some level, having a desire to explain that which it is that you, that you play or that which it is that you like to hear played or that which it is that you're, you know, sort of a part of, you have to edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> That that which it is that uh, good luck with that one. <laughs> Sorry, that you're uh, that you're you know that you're that you're doing, and then the academic part of it's really just doing the research of the field, the history of the field, current trends, current uh, sort of anomalies. And then there's the whole the, there's the whole breakdown between you know that which is just you know standard uh, analysis, as in what, what undergrads think, current undergrads think what music theories, which is right. here's a piece of music we never heard before. Uh, the here, here's here are the here are the chords using numbers that haven't been used in American discourse for 50 years and they're called Roman numbers. And then, you know, there's a little bit more to it. And I suppose also we also have that beautiful mix of, uh, 
analysis, writing sort of the academic prose of mm-hmm. explaining new trends and what we see in the music. And also just building it as an experience, not only from our own backgrounds, but also from sort of the what we call musicological, the sort of music societal background of it, which is understanding how those trends that we see fit to the discourse of, of sort of life, of just sort of regular existence in society. And then if we're lucky, we get a job. <laughs> if we're lucky. If. There's a lot of if in there. This is Tyler jumping in. I very much agree with what Michael says. <clears throat> However, I think one thing that is a little bit different between the two of us there is you do get to look at what new trends are going on as, a, as an examiner of more popular music, whereas I'm looking at how we're applying new scholarship to old music that we've probably heard before in many cases. And as a 19th century guy myself, <clears throat> there's a finite amount of repertoire, really, when you get down to it, and it's more in backwards application of new developments and scholarship than forwards application of scholarship to new material. And I think that's really exciting, finding... Because I guess when we're learning music theory in our own undergrads, it's like it seems like this very set and prescribed thing. And I guess part of it is. But it, like it's really exciting to me to learn new ways of viewing old music. I think that's really exciting. I think, I think that's fair. I mean, I, I think that there's the sort of the primary focus of like explaining the nuts and bolts. Mm-hmm. The sort of that there's a discourse here in sort of presenting yourself within the discourse. I don't want to use the term language because I've always sort of been, I don't know how, how y'all feel about it, but I've always just sort of been really bothered by people who say, well, music is a language. Well, how? I mean, yeah. what, what, how, how do I in the musical language say, look, there's a car coming, get out of the road, <laughs> you know? Um, but there, there is emotion, there is emoting, there is a sort of development of thought that is from that, but that's no different really than any other art form. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, I think to play off what you're saying, I think to play off what, what Tyler, because y'all can't see us, <laughs> what, sorry, what Tyler's saying, what Brent's saying, uh, it really, yeah, it really is just this idea of building from that grassroots idea, the nuts and bolts of how the, how the discipline, the substructure, if you will, comes about, and then seeing throughout time that there is really more than one way to, to get at to get analysis, to get understanding that which is what's going on in music. And that sort of helps to understand new trends as well as old trends that have been covered. Tyler's really doing a heck of a great job with his work getting into, seeing some new perspectives on stuff. Because that's that's the other big thing that I don't think any of us said is that music theory really does have the opportunity to talk about music really in that that new sort of light. And every generation, every group of scholars, every group of musicians all see things relatively slightly differently um, because we have the beauty of having the experience of those who did all the hard work before us. And right. Tyler's doing really, really good hard work himself, and so are you, Brent. So people will benefit off of y'all soon one day. <clears throat> so are you, by the way. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm slacking as much as humanly possible. <laughs> but, but thanks, thanks, boss. I think to bounce off of that is all of us going into education eventually, if luck has it that we find jobs, <clears throat> Part of our job is to be figuring out ways to make that older music exciting to a new uh, generation mm-hmm. and in using whatever trends are at our disposal to keep that uh, love or passion or at least acceptance of classical, pre-popular, Americanized Western music uh, in the front of your mind and finding ways to just 
keep those those pieces alive to generations to come to sound like a total sap there. <laughs> no, I agree because there's lots to enjoy about music from the past, but how regardless of how distant that past is, or at least for it to be remembered. And um, I think finding ways for really anybody to be able to appreciate that music is really important. And I think for a lot of people, um, myself included in this sometimes, um, certain classical music is just sort of like outside of my cultural context because so much of it is like European or you know, just really, really old. And so, you know, it can be hard to relate to and understand how it fits into the larger framework. I think music theory really helps because you can, for instance, maybe take uh, an art song and through music theory tie it into a Pink Floyd album or something. Or name a more modern example than that. <laughs> yeah, there, there's, there's a bunch of 18-year-olds going, Pink who? Pink who? Who's Floyd? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is fair. I mean, if you if you do hear this and you don't know who Pink Floyd is, maybe maybe stop the podcast right now and just and Google just, it. Just th- there's the YouTube, <laughs> and it's free. You should yeah, you should do that. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm curious. Just, I'm not not that you know. Please, but um, that that is something that I think we all are concerned with is how we sort of relate what we do to music that's been here and music that's going to be here. And I'm just like. It does seem like we're at a crossroads, at least in this generation's time, where certain sort of canonical or, or pieces that you know are sort of considered part of the the big picture, you know, like the the Ten Commandments sort of pieces, really aren't as well known by younger students as we think they are. Or maybe they were by generations ago. I'm curious as to if either of you see that as an issue, care about it, think there's a solution, think it matters. You know, <clears throat> either of those things. I think. And I, of course, as usual, when I say things, don't have anything to back this up. (laughs) But my feeling is, is that um, perhaps in times past, people became musicians through a more direct line of progression. Like um, you showed that you were good at music as a young kid, you were given music lessons, and then from there you just proceeded and were a classically trained musician from the time you were small. Whereas now, and this is true for me, I guess, well, I don't, I guess it's not super true for me, but I feel like more people enter classical music laterally. Like they get into music by, because they played in marching band or because they happened to pick up a guitar. And then they decided this might, this is the profession that i want to be involved with. And so they're not really aware of classical music until they get to school instead of being brought up in that tradition. I think that's a really good point that you bring up because I would dare say that I'm more of a dying breed of this generation that I did grow up on classical music and classical training. And the lateral nature that Brenton just mentioned came later for me. I went lateral from classical into rock bands and use that idea to inform my playing there rather than using my marching band or rock training to (laughs) influence my perception of music from a century plus ago. 
Right. Well, I guess that's why I backpedaled a little bit because I grew up taking violin lessons and stuff when I was young and then laterally went to playing guitar and forgot all about it and then laterally came back. So I definitely had a different experience coming to music than both of you did. I, I was a jock. (laughs) I didn't, I didn't get into my primary instrument guitar until I was 18. And so I didn't, I did nothing musical in high school. In fact, I made fun of those kids and, but they were my friends because I didn't have any other friends, I guess. You make five of your friends. <clears throat> so you, so you, <laughs> it's a complete waste of time, sorry. Um, <laughs> this is everything I will say this evening. Um, no, I, I definitely came at it from a different perspective than, than both of you. I, um, I didn't get into it until I was a little bit older. And so for that reason, I didn't have the experience of, say, <clears throat> really understanding the sort of classical canon that both of you speak of that is, I think, relatively important for young people to understand. And a lot of the instruments, that, both the, the instruments that, that both of you talked about, are are somewhat foreign to me. I mean, I, I classical guitarist, jazz guitarist, rock musician, but um, yeah, I would love to have maybe played the fiddle or learned violin or learned learned anything of flute, like like you have Tyler and some other stuff. But I, no, I never did, and so that helps me sort of see a perspective that you guys have. Is I'm almost jealous of your <laughs> of your backgrounds and your perspective because it's like, gosh, that would have been really fun. <laughs> The next part of our conversation is about the quote-unquote classical canon, the pieces and composers that are supposed to be the most important. You'll hear Tyler start us off. One thing that I have found interesting in teaching freshman theory twice in the last five years is the, the generations coming into early theory have no familiarity on these pieces that we have deemed canonical Um, nobody that I have seen really recognizes Mozart's 40th symphony if it comes up as an example or third movement of Beethoven's fifth if we're just throwing out um, solid examples there and it's interesting and I have not really figured out reasons why this is the case because and I know some of the people I was around growing up, even if they were not seriously into music, would recognize these pieces and at least know, oh, that's Mozart, or that's Beethoven, for example. But at least here, where we're studying now, it seems like there's been such a emphasis to, to incorporate new music, which is phenomenal, into freshman and sophomore theory, that these pieces that have been known for the extent of higher music education, really, are suddenly not getting known and people are leaving degrees, um, music programs, with no knowledge of that's a Beethoven symphony or that's a concerto grosso by Handel, stuff like that, which I found not so much concerning but just interesting. It's kind of both, though. It is concerning and interesting, because on mm-hmm. one hand, it's obviously concerning for the reasons that, that you've discussed which I think, which I think are completely valid. On the other hand, there's only so many hours in the day, and if if popular music is to be defined as anything that isn't classical music, then there's the question of, you know, do we teach students about jazz music? Do we teach how much do we teach them about rock music? And what is the real? I mean, Brent, you and I talked about this the other day. Is there really a need to connect classical music trends? 
or or what happened in the classical you know canon to what what we hear in popular music and so those sort of questions really i think they're pretty important but i i, I do think they're difficult to answer and that yeah. I, I think that's kind of the the root of the the situation there mm-hmm. yeah i think um i guess my two cents on it would be phil's like purely philosophical discussions aside um I think I view classical music as sort of a tool bag to use or an education in classical music as a tool bag to use as a musician, because if you're going to be a musician, you're going to have to play most likely classical and jazz and whatever else you happen to need to play. Um, And there's skills that come from learning those various how to be competent in those various genres that I think also cross boundaries. And so I think learning classical music and learning how to perform it and how to interpret it is part of becoming a well-rounded musician. As for like specific pieces, um, I don't know. Like I, I think it would be really great if everybody knew like the 10 commandment pieces, but I, I don't know, maybe they're changing or, um, you know, I, I certainly don't think they're lost. Perhaps they're just not in popular culture anymore. I wonder if they've ever actually been. Like, I mean, when was this sort of, you know, Moses with the tablets moment that said these are, these are the pieces that all musicians in, in this part of the world need to know well to be, to be sort of under the auspice of quote-unquote classical? I mean, that, that's always been my question. Then when you have other pieces, the question sort of becomes like, you know, do, do, you, do you now have 11? Yeah. <laughs> or do you have yeah. 10? <laughs> I think yeah. that's kind of the root of the question. And there's just so much music out there. And whether you think of it from a classical standpoint or you think of it from a popular standpoint, there's just so much music out there that how could you even begin to make the really ins- just foolish value judgment of saying, well, this is good. And this isn't good. And that's the thing I think as a theorist, I would like to at some level have some sort of discussion in the conversation about in my career, scare quotes career, <laughs> is it would be nice to be able to have that discussion of like, why do we even care about good or bad? Why, mm. why do we make these value judgments? And I think part of it is because we teach people aesthetics based upon, you know, what, what the standard, standard operating procedure has been for the former generation. And you have jazz, which is a fairly, uh, fairly disparate style of music compared to classical music. I mean, so, some could argue it's not terribly disparate from, from German lead and other stuff in the 19th century. Some would say it is, but uh, it's at least very, very disparate from that which happened in Europe in the 1700s, hopefully. <laughs> and um, that's debatable, but I, I mean, obviously it should be. And then when you look at rock music and, and sort of the more modern popular music in America, it's so disparate from both of those forms that now, I mean, where, where are you going to find the time to teach all of this? Right. From here, we start talking about performance practice and how written music should be interpreted differently for different types of performance, and a little bit of how that's different between popular music, say, and classical music with an orchestra or something. Michael kicks us off again. Uh, when we started this, the, the question you brought up is, what is a music theorist? And I think this is something all three of us sort of sort of skipped in our definition, is that these sort of decisions 
for the most part, really do come down to performance practice, and they really do come down to the theorist who understands sort of the way in which a single performance today fits into the sort of lexicon of performance, uh, large scale throughout the history, known history of performance of the piece. Absolutely, and I think that's where theorists and certainly musicologists as well come into the picture so much, is looking at your how you want to edit a piece from the score, from the fair copy, from the the handwritten manuscript. <clears throat> because for years and years, there's a part of Beethoven's Eroica that was considered a misprint in his score that was just not printed. There's a false horn entry I before the recap. Seriously? Seriously. Wow. And it was just not printed because it was assumed to be a mistake. However, in looking back, more current editors have who are sticking closer to the handwritten drafts, go, that's probably actually not a mistake, so we should put that back in. Right. And then you have people like Stokowski, who thinks sometimes, oh, Beethoven should have done this one more time, so let's just do it again. <laughs> but why is that his decision? Why is that Stokowski's decision? Why does he think that? I, I'm not Stokowski, so I can't can't talk on, on such. I mean, But it's... You're, it, you're sort of strange. alluding to this idea that there's there's a known performance practice, and what we're trying to do is align that which doesn't fit into that. We're trying to align that which doesn't fit into what we think it should fit into. Yes, and so yeah. we're really trying to sort of box things into these you know perfect little boxes of knowledge. And mm-hmm. I think what we're all saying at some level is that that's not real. Well, what strikes me about what you just said as interesting is. Is, is in a Beethoven symphony, choosing to repeat a particular passage like sets off alarm bells for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But if you were to do that and say, like, in your cover band when you're playing Hotel California and you decide to do the chorus twice in a row at the end... Then it's totally fine. Then it's totally fine. Because people are into it. <laughs> yeah. No, there, where I noticed it, I think it was in the second movement of the fifth symphony that there was just one measure that was repeated one too many times. And it's like, that was weird. Did I hear that right? Like but, in that particular performance? Uh, or in of the Stokowski, score? yeah. And going back and looking at it, it's like, okay, that was one more time. Interesting. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's really, I mean, I guess you can sit, could consider a whole performance practice school for Stokowski. <laughs> I mean, if, if we're getting down to it, because that is a historical performance, so it could be historically practiced. Well, I guess it brings up the idea of, like, I guess sometimes uh, composers in scare quotes, like Beethoven, Mozart, and whoever, um, almost, like, they're, the, the notes they wrote sometimes are almost more important than how the music is played. And I'm not really leaning either direction on that. Just mm-hmm. more so, like, you would be more offended that somebody repeated something in Beethoven than repeated something in the Eagles. And I, I think that's a really interesting... Yeah, totally. Like, dynamic. Yeah, and I think that goes back to the danger that we as music scholars, music academics, really like to make, as you said, Michael nice little boxes for everything. And when something fits, does not fit in that box, we want to try to 
twist and shape it to put it in. And Umberto Eco has a, a fun quote about this that I thought of earlier that I pulled up. But it says, what does culture want to make infinity comprehensible and also to create order? And here we are trying to create order. And when something does not fit into that, perhaps in the mind of Stokowski, adding that extra repeat puts it in the order that he hears. In the next bit, you're going to hear us pull out this word urtext, which is really just a fancy word for the essence of a piece of music. In the classical world, scholars agree upon a urtext edition of something, which is just basically saying that this is what we agree upon that the composer meant. The thing, though, is that there's not a parallel for this in popular music, and so part of this conversation is trying to figure out what the urtext for a piece of popular music is. And I want to jump back to your talk about the urtext in pop music, please, because that's a bit different than the urtext that we talk about in 19th century music because I'm stuck back there. <laughs> it is different. Well, yeah, because when we look at that, we're considering not only the composer's... Um, the manuscript that they sent off, we're considering the scribal work, we're considering first editions, corrections to that. So we're, we're kind of making an average mm. to construct an urtext, which I suppose is a little bit easier with much of Hensel in that there is only one, so your average is pretty pretty easy to calculate. I can count to one. <laughs> Indeed, as can I. I can even count to four because that's what we do as musicians. Exclusively, um, of course. Supposedly. <laughs> I'm on some days better at that than others. But with that being the case, if somebody were to bring up the semantics of an urtext with you as a pop musician, is there an established definition of a pop urtext? Or are, is that something that you are pioneering? I, I wouldn't say I'm pioneering anything other than just really bad work, but... Um, I think you should give yourself credit. <laughs> I'll give myself credit for making bad work, yeah. Um, to my knowledge... Um, because the idea of analyzing popular music is still such a relatively, I mean, it is still relatively new. I mean, that, that's sort of been the excuse for 25 years, and then after a while you start going, maybe it's not new. But, um, yeah, I, I think it because it's it's relatively new. We sort of, you know, how do I say this without sounding like an idiot, like a rambling idiot? kind of want to sing like a Lord I was born a rambling man <laughs> can't put that in the podcast that's copywritten um, so urtext to answer your question um, to my knowledge there's no standardized definition there's no in popular music in popular music there is no urtext other than that everybody sort of unequivocally decides that the studio recording is the urtext for a very simple reason. I think a very justifiable reason that the idea of modern recording technology uh, at the level we see today with uh, the internet, with the YouTube, with the iPhone, with all of it uh, is still, as far as in the popular music realm, a fairly new concept. And so uh, the studio recording is something we can hang our hat on, mm -hmm. something we have. And the question is now, can't we hang our hat on that, you know, recorded in 4K or 8K, 10, 1080 HD, high-def audio from the iPhone XS27, which is better than what they had in 1991? I mean, if that's the case, then yeah, we, we, have, we have a significant problem on our hands. And on top of that, 
I guess maybe to the former point, we have a problem because musicians are becoming much, much more open about this idea that in many genres, I don't think it fits just the jam band, jam band genre. In many genres, you're seeing this, well, we are intentionally making our live performances different than studio, the, the songs in the live performances are in studio recording because that's where they're profiting. Mm. <laughs> that's, that's where the money's coming from. And again, follow the money. And what makes you pay... Uh, not putting it down, but what makes you pay forty, fifty, a hundred, two hundred, five hundred dollars for a concert ticket, knowing that the experience will be slightly different than hitting the Spotify and going, "Oh, cool." And so, I think musicians are keenly aware of the fact that there has to be something more than that. That, that the the studio recording has to be just a jumping off point. And so, as those of us who analyze things, you know, we look at we look at and we look for differences and similarities when we see glaring differences, other than just well, the solo lasted seven minutes. Well, this time they didn't sing the third verse, or this time they sang the chorus six times and changed the words, or this time there was an accordion solo as opposed to a flute solo, you know, whatever. Sick. Um, <laughs> Depends on who you ask. Sick, brah. Um, yeah, I think those things do matter. So I don't, I don't think there is a standardized definition. If there was one, it would, it would have to be similar to sort of what, what y'all do in, the, in the, the classical and modern classical stuff, which is talk about additions. But I've always wondered if, because there's a lot of, uh, we'll say just well-known songs that the most well-known version of it is not, the recording was not made by the person who wrote it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so then is the very original recording, the Ur text, or the one that made it popular? And so I guess, I mean, I... I it's a great question. I have no... I, I, I'm not in any camp on that, but it's just something I wonder about. Well, at one point, I think there has to be a jumping off point. So if you're talking about comparison and similarity and difference, that means that there's, there is a, at a very base level, a similarity as in it's the same song. Right. And for there to be a same song, there has to be a first song. Right. And for there to be a first song, there has to be an urtex. So in that sense, you could argue it's always the first, the first one to plant the flag on the, on the, on the soil gets the country. But, uh, I think even more interesting than that poor analogy in my part is this idea of what about when the songs are just so incredibly different? Yeah. And I mean, this is what happens. I'm, I'm going to speak out of, out of school here, but this is what happens in, in hip hop music. This is what happens in rap. This is what's happening with sampling. I mean, clearly we have examples of reuse of <laughs> already established songs, but the new song is just different enough that we don't say, this is the second version of, you know, uh, David Bowie vis-a-vis -vis Vanilla Ice. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, but could we? No, that would be farcical. And so there, there, ha there has to be, there, there's a difference between just, you know, it's new, therefore, and it's similar. It really is the same thing, but, but, but altered. Yeah, right. I, I think you can draw that back to the 19th century as well, because one would never say, I suppose, that the list transcription of a Schumann song is an urtext. It is a different version of the same song. And therefore, because Schumann might have used a quip of Schubert in that song, List interpreting that as well is not going to redefine the conception of that bit. It's more of a sample. So I, I think there's some... I probably phrased that horribly, but I, I think you at least see what I'm saying in that the whole conception that you just explained through hip-hop is not even so much a a modern construction as it is 
seen in the 19th century as well, and even beforehand. I think what I wonder about, because if we have a list transcription of uh, Schumann song, uh, it is recognized as the Schumann song. Mm-hmm. But like if we have, uh, I'm blanking on a better example, but we'll say I get by with little help from my friends. I don't know whether the Joe Cocker one or the Beatles one is actually more famous, but one of them is if, if you say to somebody, uh, do you know this song? They're going to think of one of those if yes. they know the song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I guess I wonder is like this popular consciousness play a role in deciding what urtext is? That's a great question. Yes. It, it would have to. <laughs> it would have to. Because, I mean, Liszt was not going around transcribing, since he was in Germany, Johann Schmo instead of <laughs> Joe Schmo down, <laughs> down the street, um, saying, oh, he, he, he wrote a cool song, therefore Wait, I'm going to make Which gets the umlaut there. It, yes. <laughs> you, you provide the umlaut wherever you want it. Um, but umlaut. Bring your own umlaut. <laughs> Indeed. B-Y-O-U. Or B-Y-O-E. Um, but <laughs> that could probably be cut from this podcast as well. I, I specialize... seconds worth of my, material. My secondary it. is in cheap laughs. Um, <clears throat> I'll do what I can to get them. But um, what, would it, what would have informed, I do believe, not being list, but speaking for him right now, um, feel free to strike me with lightning if you dare, um, but he's using pieces that would have been well-known, such as Schumann, Schubert, pieces that are not far out of public consciousness at that point that would have been in publication, would have been circulating in that area. The Beethoven symphonies also that he transcribed for piano. And, I mean, there are many stories as to why, but using popular music, basically, something that, as you said, in public consciousness to choose to make a different version of. And I would hazard to say that in 1860, nobody was going, oh, I've never heard that. List wrote a really nice piece. Oh, wait, there's a Schumann version of it too? <laughs> yeah. I, I would imagine that if people were hearing this transcription of a German lead, they're going, that's a really nice transcription of Schumann. Mm-hmm. The the impetus behind the Beethoven symphonies were a bit different because he wanted to take the symphonic experience to places that didn't have symphonies. So they may not have been as familiar, Mm -hmm. but I don't think there was any question of, this is a nice piece by Liszt. It was, Liszt has made Beethoven in a nutshell and delivered it to us. Right. In this last section, we're wrapping up by just sort of talking about what being a music theorist and a music academic means to us, and how we feel like we can apply that to the rest of our lives. I don't know. It's 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 sort of like uh, watching. Uh, I'll shut up. It, it's sort of like watching a sport, and the first time you see a sport, and you have no idea what's going on. You, you have no clue what's going on, but you see people who are impassioned, and and just full of vim and vigor for this. this they, they know the history and the rivalries. They know, they know all the different mechanisms of the game, and they know the strategies. And then you find yourself going, well, I wouldn't mind learning about that. Maybe go play the sport. You go, you go have a time. And you find yourself just becoming enraptured by learning the biggest, the, just the tiniest nuances, the biggest details you can find, the smallest little nuances. And 
That's what we do as theorists. We, we are the performer. We are the composer. We're, we're also the person who goes, this is historical practice. This is expectation. This is why it is what it is. And I, I just think it's the most exciting career path I could have ever, ever picked. Well, and, yeah, I feel the same. And, and I, I think at the base level, you can at least, even if you find it boring, I guess, you can learn the basics of music theory and learn four-part chorale writing or whatever and then identify that this is different from something else and that's interesting. Yeah, you Why don't, is that? Yeah, you really don't need to have a grasp on the many different avenues that theory covers to be able to make informed decisions about music. You can make great decisions coming out of two years of core theory training because one doesn't need to know every sort of Kaplan phrase model or Hepikowski-Darcy sonata model to recognize that this is a period, this is a sonata, etc. You've got a, a lot of tools at your disposal that you can be as specific with as you want, but at the same time, you're still able to make informed decisions by, by having a knowledge of those tools. You don't need every metric socket to fix a car. It's you will do ya. Well, that's today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please visit me on the web at patreon.com slash music in theory, or you can go to one of the social media profiles listed in the show notes. This podcast is written, recorded, and produced by me, Brent Lawrence, in my apartment's spare bedroom, which is currently located in Eugene, Oregon. I'd like to thank Tyler and Michael so much for being here today. It's been a blast, and I'm looking forward to putting together part two. I hope you'll tune in next time. But until then, keep listening. This has been Music in Theory. Thank you.